Welcome, adventurers. Caria has gathered talented colleagues to her side, but the unforgiving burning hills lie ahead, and her difficult task is far from complete. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Caria was awoken by the sound of her own teeth chattering, despite the rising temperature of the day. The shivering was a bad sign. Fever pointed to infection in the wound in her thigh or back. But there was nothing to be done. She had no medicine, no healing magic. She didn't even have the means to make a fire. And even if she did, she could not. Giving away her position would bring her death much faster than any infection. She drew her knees up to her chest and pulled her cloak tighter around her body. The chattering of her teeth stopped. Her head shifted up, eyes falling on the urn which sat less than a pace away. Her thoughts were pulled to her bloody hand placed against its cold side. To the memory of the growing warmth, and her teeth started chattering again pulsing warmth. What if I held it? She loathed the thought of it. But even as she did, she found her hand reaching out to gather in the urn. She pulled it into her chest, wrapping her arms around it. At first it was cold, and then, slowly, it warmed. Warmed with a pulsing beat, a beat that soon matched the rhythm of her heart. A dry wind picked up and whistled through the gully. Eyes closed, brow sweating. Could she hear? Were those the voices of Ukwala in the distance? She fell into a fitful sleep and dreamed dark dreams. Fion had rifled through their packs, tossing various items out, paring down their food to almost nothing, muttering the whole time about Greenlanders and something about being humans, not mules. When he was done, he handed them their diminished burdens with a frown. Karia and Koi frowned back, holding their packs out at arm's length in disbelief. Fion, seeing their faces, huffed. You been in the glass sea, then? Caria's face, still dubious, shook her head. No. You paying me to guide you and keep you alive? Caria looked to Koi for a moment. The smirk returned to the archer's face, and she swung the mostly empty pack onto her back. Caria looked back to the halfling and said, I did. Then let me guide you. The last thing we need in the sea is an extra forty pounds of... He didn't speak here so much as mutter and gesticulate at the newly discarded pile of supplies. Caria's eyebrows rose slightly, but she too swung on her pack. Fion nodded, weathered hand reaching into a pouch at his side, hand searching, face crunched into a look of concentration. A few beats of this before the hand returned and was opened palm up in front of his face, 
revealing a handful of small objects. His other hand went to work sorting. A few coppers and a small stone were returned to the pouch. A piece of plant material, a dried leaf, was held up, examined, and discarded. What remained were four small berries. They were a muted, dark red color with just a hint of brown. He handed one to Karya, took a few steps, and handed one to Koi. They each held them in turn, looking back at him. Theon's hands returned to his hips, a look of anticipation on his face. And then, Well, what are you waiting for? Eat up. Karya squinted at the little man. But Koi shrugged, tossed the berry up into the air, catching it in her mouth. She chewed twice and swallowed. Karya watched and waited. Now both Fion and Koi stared back at her, Fion tapping his foot impatiently. Karya lifted the berry up, sniffing at it. It had a faint, almost citrus smell. She placed it in her mouth and chewed. It was unbelievably flavorful. And to her surprise, as she swallowed, the feeling of satisfaction spread quickly from her stomach, rushing through her body. That was no ordinary berry. Fionn nodded. Let us be off, then. We got a way to go tonight. They had traveled until a bell before dawn. Fionn led them on an unerring but winding path. Caria considered this odd as they were traveling across the open desert, but she presumed Fionn had his reasons. They sipped water as they traveled, but to Caria's dismay, no sense of hunger came to her for the entire journey. No ordinary berry, indeed. Their journey took them east and south, toward what had appeared to be a large outcropping of rocks. As they continued, though, the outcropping grew larger and taller, stabbing into the silvery night sky. This was not an outcropping at all. Devil's spine, Karya thought, reviewing the map she had studied in her mind's eye. Devil's spine was a small range of mountains that jut up from this stark landscape, separating the glass sea from the burning hills. It was on the east side of Devil's Spine, near the southern end of the range that Skellish's shrine was, provided Esmeray's information was accurate. The night's journey ended at a large rock formation some two miles north of the northern foot of the Devil's Spine. They entered a narrow canyon on the west side of the rocks, and wound their way through crevices and cracks, Caria, largest of them all, barely making it through in some places. Deep among the rocks they came to a small opening, roughly circular, fifteen paces across. Rock faces rose steeply on all sides. Caria took that in as secondary to what seemed its own small miracle. The area was covered in lush green plants. They grew from the cracks and ledges of the walls, Several beds of vegetables were planted on the floor. The air was cool and moist. Welcome to my home, Fionn said, and then crossing the grotto to the opposite wall, reached out to pull aside a curtain of draping vines to reveal a small opening. Come on in, get some water, and get to sleep. From here on out we travel only at night, and sleep only on hard rock. I'll wake you at Solset. The next night's travel took them to the eastern foot of the Devil's Spine, which Fion referred to as 
Dumas Plachta. They kept to the foot of the mountains, the burning hills sprawling out to the east. They found what shelter they could as Sol broke the horizon, stretching a rough brown tarp between dry scrub brushes. It was not long before it was hot and miserable. Convinced it was hotter under the tarp, Caria had found her way quietly free, to be proven wrong immediately. Soul's light felt as if someone held a brand against her skin. She shaded her eyes staring east and was awestruck. The burning hills, a clever name and a perfect description of nature's power. Before her was an endless warren of rolling red and yellow rock, sculpted by wind, sand, and water. Countless crevices and peaks rolling and rippling. Soul's brilliant light pounded down on the unforgiving land, and the rock sucked up the heat and radiated it back to the sky. The whole scene undulated and shimmered. The absence of smoke was the only thing that broke the illusion of staring out over an unceasing fire. Sweat poured down from her brow, stinging her eyes. Are you daft? Get back under the tarp, came Fionn's sleepy voice. Five more minutes and you'll be soul-kissed, and we'll have to waste bells while you retch out all your water, and several more getting it back into you. It was hard to look away from the violent majesty of the hills, but she took the halfling's tone and crawled back under the tarp to drift into a shallow and fitful sleep. She woke with a start, to Fionn's hand upon her shoulder. His other hand was held out in a gesture of calm. She quickly regained her composure. Coy was already awake, packs slung over her shoulders, staring off toward the east, longbow protruding up like a sapling above her head. When Caria was packed, Fionn muttered some words, circling a green sprig over a closed hand, and then, with a final flourish, opened it to reveal more of the dark-hued berries. They each took one and ate. Today we travel with great care. Though we have been most of the day inside the lands of the seven tribes, as we approach Kast Ruknasvatnya, there will be patrols. We move in bursts. I scout ahead. You follow. If we are discovered, move higher into the mountains as fast as you can. If you survive, make your way back home. We get one shot at this. And then, turning to Koi, I will move ahead. If I appear in sight and bob my head three times, that means follow. If I bob my head once, that means wait. If I sneak up on you unawares, well, we don't go anywhere, and you, he said, pointing at Koi, don't shoot me in any of those cases. Koi smirked. No one sneaks up on me unawares, Grandpa. Fionn stared a moment, then a cackle burst forth, stopping almost as soon as it had started. He stepped back, his form shimmering. Fionn was replaced with a desert cat they had first met. The hair on the back of Caria's neck stood on end. There was nothing about that she liked. The night passed slow and tedious, the cat appearing, them moving. To the east, the rocks were now painted gray and silver in Arjun's light. Cerise was low in the eastern sky, glowering red, as if Cinder watched them with curiosity, but always ready to escape below the horizon. Signs of campfires could be seen in the rocky expanse, but it was difficult to say how many or how far. 
Two bells before Sol rose, they were nearly discovered. Fionn had just appeared, nodding three times, when an arrow clattered off a rock just below him. The cat disappeared. Karya and Koi took cover. A bar later, the guttural voices of Ukwala could be heard. Karya watched Koi peek out, then roll back behind a small boulder where they hid. She signaled, four, and began to silently string her bow. Karya drew a dagger and waited. The voices moved to where Fionn had been. A conversation, an angry grunt, followed by a rumbling sound. Laughter? Further words exchanged, and then more movement. Koi peeked again, spinning immediately back, setting an arrow to the string. She didn't need a signal this time. The Ukwala were coming this way. They waited. The footsteps grew closer. Koi tensed. Karia knew she would shoot at any moment now. And then, up the hill and away from them, a trilling meow sound. The footsteps stopped. The sound came again. It sounded like an odd bird call. But Karia strongly suspected it was the call of a very specific desert cat. The voices gave a cry of recognition. One laughed, and then feet sped away toward the sound. Koi's muscles relaxed, bow falling to her lap. It was nearly three-quarters of a bell before the cat appeared, Koi whispering, Hello, Grandpa. A moment before he appeared, he scratched the ground, circled anxiously, and headed off. They were to follow close behind. They moved as quickly as they could, pushing the line between stealth and speed. The sky was beginning to show signs of pre-dawn when the cat stepped onto a narrow path where the mountain met a rock outcropping. After fifty steps along the path on the outcropping, the face fell straight away, eighty paces or more to the rocky ground below. High wire work was not her favorite, but she was good at it. Koi also seemed unfazed, attention focused ahead. Thirty more steps in the path turned sharply to the left. Stepping around the corner, Karia sucked in her breath, unprepared for what she saw. They had come out on a small ledge, only slightly larger than the three of them, on the bare, open face of a rocky cliff. All the burning hills spread out before them and below them. It was hundreds and hundreds of feet to the hills below. Karia stood unmoving, not trusting her muscles for a moment. And then, just off to her left, a hiss that broke her trance. Fion had reverted to his halfling form. A tarp, quickly now, before Sol rises and we are laid bare for all the seven tribes to see. The ledge was in fact slightly larger than Karia's first impression, five paces across and three paces deep. A vertical crack in the cliff face near the back of the ledge was home to a fairly sizable tree, brown and leafless. Fion worked with Koi to unfurl the tarp, then scurried up the tree to tie off one corner. Koi, seeing what he was about, weighted the bottom edge with their bags. The result was a hunting blind of sorts that they could sit behind, protected from view. Behind, behind, my Greenlanders, Fion urged them. They stepped behind just in time. It was as if a lantern were unhooded. There was shadow, and then light smacked full against the tarp, creating a bright but diffuse light. Fion pressed his back against the cliff face, letting out a sigh. He shut his eyes as he drew a medallion out of his shirt, 
and held it tightly in his hand, muttering. Kari was pretty sure she heard Cinder and Grumpsh cursed Trickster in there somewhere. After letting him go on for a moment, Karia asked, How much longer until the shrine? Fion's eyes popped open. Longer? And then gesturing to the tarp. No longer. We are there. Karia drew up her hood and poked her head just outside the blind, looking away to the south. Some five hundred feet south of their position, and maybe a hundred feet below them, was a much larger ledge. Forty paces across and thirty paces deep. Below it, hewn into the mountain itself, were stone steps that led down to the valley below. Coming up the stairs were a group of ten Ukwala. They summited the steps and walked across the ledge, past a massive bonfire which was smoldering out. They continued to where six others stood, guarding the mouth of the massive cavern. A crudely worked stone arch created the mouth of the cave. It was shaped into jagged teeth, making it appear to be the maw of some ancient and terrible beast. The ten Ukwala stopped, talking with the six that were already there. After five bars, the six gathered weapons and packs and made their way to the stairs. Six of the newly arrived Ukwalas took up position within the mouth of the cave, the four others raking the coals out of the bonfire and beginning to rebuild. Karia gave a small start as Fion's voice came from below her. The halfling lay on his belly, also watching the scene play out. Cast Rukna Svantnya, he said in the tongue of the Ukwala. The shrine of Skelashaf ended. Now we have come to the very shrine of Skellish Half-Handed, and plans need to be made. Join me next week for part three of Into the Fire.